Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, my man, how's everything going? Things are going. It is cold here. It feels like winter is suddenly upon us in Asheville. Uh, it's crisp. Morning dog walks, evening dog walks are cold, but I'm feeling warm today because I get to talk to you and uh, Emil Elzamora. Yes, yes, it is not freezing here in Houston, but I am looking forward to this conversation as well because Emil is a world-class artist. He has done some beautiful, amazing uh, sculpting work which you can check out on his website. We're going to dive into his creative process, how he sees the world, the importance of doing real things, which can be a physical practice or could be sculpting. All sorts of good stuff. Emil has so many good insights. I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be a little bit different, but in a really you know, um, important and uh, influential way. So, that's where we're at. That is where we're at. Uh, bear with us. There's a little bit of feedback in Emil's microphone. Uh, you'll hear a common theme throughout the conversation is Emil lives a pretty low-tech life. He's too busy creating beautiful sculptures to, to know about the ins and outs of podcasting. So um, if the sound quality isn't what you're used to from us, uh, Hang in there. We think it is a very small price to pay for the insights in this conversation um, with a, a different than usual guest, as, as Steve pointed out. Before we get into the interview, um, we want to plug another podcast. Uh, as you all know, we here at The Growth Equation are 100% independent, member-supported on Patreon. We take no sponsorships. Um, but we made a little trade because there's a new podcast called Reconsidering that we've absolutely loved. It's hosted by Aaron Walter, Meredith Black, and Bob Baxley. Uh, and they call it a podcast about life, which is really relevant to the things that we talk about here. Uh, in particular, they're interested in how COVID has forced so many people to reconsider, reconsider their jobs, reconsider their relationships, reconsider their sources of meaning. I was on the podcast recently. I had such a great conversation with them. I went back, I listened to all the episodes, and it is the perfect complement to the kind of stuff that we talk about here at The Growth Equation. Um, so much so that uh, Catherine May, who wrote the book Wintering and who will be uh, as a part of our Patreon um, book club, is a featured guest on Reconsidering. They've got a professor of philosophy from MIT as a Kieran Setia phenomenal episode. So just all kinds of great stuff over there. Uh, if you need another podcast in your rotation that's different than some of the other stuff out there, we think you should give Reconsidering a spin. You can listen everywhere you listen to podcasts and you can learn more at www.reconsidering.org. Again, to be clear, we're not selling out. We're not getting paid. We genuinely think this is a great podcast and a perfect complement to the Growth EQ. Uh, so we're excited to tell you all about it. So with that, let's dive into the conversation with today's guest, the artist Emil Alzamora. 
Emil, great to have you on the show. How are you doing today? Thanks so much. I'm doing great. Um, nice to be with you guys. It's a, a treat. It's a treat for us too. As listeners know, um, when we do interviews on the show, we tend to be really interested in elite performers that are on a sustainable path to success, that merge mind, body, spirit, science, art. Um, yet we've never had a material artist on the show. We've had athletes, we've had recording artists, we've had entrepreneurs. Um, you are our first sculptor. So why don't you give us a, a little bit of background um, about your journey to making a living and, and having a career as, um, as a sculptor? Well, beautiful uh, intro. And I love how you compare. Um, well, I think in all walks, this, this effort to express oneself, whether it's through literal creativity in my case, I, I say that I'm literally creative. I, I actually make tangible objects that are expressions of my creativity, but there's so many ways to be creative. Um, and athletics is one of them, and, um, and it's sort of infinite. But in terms of um, visual art and sculpture, in my case, primarily sculpture, I do some 2D as well as, um, well, mostly 3D, but some painting. And now I'm kind of exploring two and a half dimensions, which is an interesting subject too. Um, but in terms of uh, how I got here and how I started, uh, I kind of come from a family of artists, my mother, my grandmother, my aunt. They were all working artists and um, sort of felt like the family business in a way. Um, even though I, I initially was a little bit more um, practical or I wanted more or less a more stable job as a youth, being an illustrator or a medical illustrator or something of that nature and comic books when I was younger. Uh, in college, I, I had really great professors and mentors that kind of redirected me toward fine art and kind of back to my roots of, of that sort of less practical form of expression. Um, and then when I graduated college, I ended up in New York and worked at a foundry for a couple of years to kind of really hone my skills and learn about how to make three-dimensional works uh, without limitation or with much far fewer limitations. And then um, I made a body of work when I was there in my early 20s, mid-20s, and started showing thereafter and haven't stopped. So I'm, I'm still at it 20 years in, I guess. I love it. So, I, I, you know, you mentioned something in there, Emil, that I want to kind of dive into is you said you, you were kind of pushing or leaning towards something more stable, right? And then you get in college, you get some professors, some mentors, what was it like, like moving away from that, that, that path of future stability towards one that might, that allows you to express, but also has like this inherent risk involved and uncertainty because of just the line of work you do? That's a great question. And I think it was part of learning the broader context of where art can exist and in this case, visual art, um, the more I learned about art history and the more I learned about the contemporary context, because my family were kind of, um, weren't really that into the, the cutting edge contemporary art scene. They were more of their own thing with a broad emphasis on classics and 
um, a broader spectrum of, of art rather than the leading edge of what was happening now or say the New York City art scene where my I had an aunt that was involved in the New York City art scene and my uncle and they were really I guess more aware of the career aspect of a fine art um, I guess career to for lack of a more a better description uh, whereas my mom and my aunt my my grandmother were more bohemian and a little bit more outsider if you will so for me the whole prospect seemed um a little too far out to be that outsider and then in college i learned a little bit more about what my aunt and uncle had been doing they both see they both died way too young in their 20s and 40s um but I always knew about their New York art career. And in college, I learned quite a bit more about contemporary art and just, like I said, the broader context of, of that sort of expression. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is where it matters. And it's not about being able to predict how, how safe it's going to be. You just have to go all in and trust that it'll work out. And, um, and I, I attribute some of that to my good, mentorship and the teachers I had at Florida State in Tallahassee where I went to school and it just sort of shifted I, I had this feeling that I, I needed to be more immersed in the art historical narrative as opposed to a more practical graphic design or illustration or um, you know there there's so many ways to apply your draftsmanship or your your creativity but the, the I, I think the broader or the more narrow focus of high art or fine art or vision like that's that intention is is much more specific and that was something i learned more about in school and so i sort of dove in head first when i came to new york knowing that that's what that direction would mean we're gonna bounce around a bit so i'm gonna move from the the past to the present where does your inspiration for your work come from. I am super fortunate. I own two pieces of yours. And, um, you know, they say that art has a truth that is not rational. It makes you feel it's like a deeper truth. And your work to me just captures elements of the human spirit, whether it's defeat, whether it's a feeling of just having given everything, whether it's rising up. Um, what, like, how do these pieces come to you? It's a good question. Um, it's almost like, well, the art practice for me and sculpture in particular, I, I'm, I've always been very physical and not necessarily athletic. I was not really a good athlete, but I liked running and I liked cycling and I did do some team sports, even though it wasn't my natural uh, inclination. Um, the physicality of sculpture was really attractive to me. And I think tied to that is the, the intense feeling that can be expressed through not so much an image, like a painting is an image of something, but a sculpture is the embodiment or the effigy of what could possibly actual, you know, it's an actual manifestation of, of this feeling and expressivity. So I think the inspiration is to kind of create these um, totems that can embody that emotion. And the emotions are open to interpretation. Everybody brings their own 
kind of narrative and, and history and emotional ecosystem to what it is that is being made. Um, and it's not for everyone, but I, I think I do like the idea of I'm a bit of a populist in that I don't want my work to have a code that has to be unpacked to understand it through an artist statement or through uh, an obscure contemporary kind of, and a lot of conceptual art, you really have to decode it to start accessing what might become an emotion. <laughs> but for me, for me, I love that, that initial impact of, of the whole spectrum of human emotion. Uh, and it, it seems to lean toward intense and maybe um, dramatic with my yeah. work. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's a piece that I'm going to describe in, in, in the show notes for listeners. We'll link to an image of it. And, and I have a miniature of, of this sculpture that you made. And it's a, a figure, a human, just kind of like on the ground, arms out, um, leaning over at the hips, not praying, not just like spent. And it was really the first piece of artwork that I had uh, such a visceral experience to. I, I saw it at my grandmother's house when I was probably like 19. And something about it, just I, I was just getting into philosophy and reading and what does it mean to have a meaningful life. And something about that piece just spoke to me in such a profound way of like this person that had just like emptied out everything. And in any context, it could be a runner that just won their first medal, a parent that just gave birth to a child, a creative that just had work. So that's how I interpreted it. I'm curious, when you're first coming up with that idea and creating that sculpture, what are you thinking? What's going through your mind? Yeah, so that particular sculpture, I, I titled it Abrazo, which in Spanish means embrace. And it was for a specific um, site-specific commission that was pretty broad. Um, and it went to my hometown. Um, my former employer uh, commissioned me to make a sculpture that honored the island and the, the people that were lucky enough to grow up on the island, such as myself and his grandchildren. So it was a very personal um, inquiry from this particular um, patron. And I, I just thought, well, what about having grown up on this island in, in the Gulf Coast of Florida, what meant the most to me? And I just felt that the land itself and the beach and the, the surf and just nestling oneself in that landscape, to me, felt right. And to express that almost larger than life, I made this wingspan. The person has a 10 and a half foot wingspan and it's kind of life-size. So it's, a, it's sort of an exaggerated outsized embrace of of the, the land beneath them. Uh, but I love your interpretation of, of where you took it. It's just, it's beautiful. And, and that's the beauty of making these things that hopefully are charged with human emotion, that human emotion can be read differently through different people. And in a way it is, it was very cathartic for me to make that piece because it was an embrace and a recognition of the support and the love that I was lucky enough to have from that community and from that landscape and going to the beach every day as a child, young adult, that, that formed me for sure. And so the piece for me was absolutely about reverie and uh, humility, humbling oneself to the grandeur, beauty of, of the world. That's beautiful. I love it. Um, 
Let me ask you, Emil, about something that, that Brad and I have wrestled with. And I think some of your answers here have kind of hinted at this. You mentioned the physicality of like running and cycling and then bringing that into sculpture. Um, with the world seeming a little bit chaotic, I think it's Brad and I both have this idea, this theory that it's more important now than ever to do real things. Yes. And like whether that real thing is running where you spend all your, you know, you just get exhausted, but you're, you're, moving in a reality or that real thing is is creating something a sculpture out of before what was just pieces and parts i'm wondering if like just if you can riff off of that and give us your your thoughts on that oh absolutely yeah no it's such an interesting subject for me because I do, well, I'd say about 80% of the work that I make is analog or material in the studio. And then I have an office with a computer and, and I've been in recent years doing more and more VR sculpting or sculpting on the computer. And they're two very different worlds. One is much more cerebral, less physical. You actually get a little bit office cherry, like, you know, when you, you need to get out there and, and run up the hill or something like that to sort of have a contrast to this immersive digital world it's almost i call it it's like a collective imagination that we're manifesting and it's just another way that we're able to create the world in our own image not to get too esoteric or like spiritual like that but i do feel like humanity is committed to recreating our own biology in a way uh, not consciously but um i mean almost literally with the neural network and the kind of it, wiring up the electricity, the energy systems, the flow with with materials and, and commerce, and it's kind of fascinating how we're we're creating this superorganism. And so I think it's important, as in normal life, I guess to call it that, you can't just sit at your office all day. It's otherwise it's it's detrimental. So you have to have this balance between some sort of tie to our physicality. And I think going forward, part of what's so weird about the world right now is I think we have an imbalance because of the novelty of all this electric kind of entertainment and information. We're still sort of figuring out how to strike a balance between what it has to offer and what's still healthy for us to participate in physically. Uh, IRL, in real life, I learned that recently. I'm like, really, that's a thing? <laughs> which it's, unfortunately that is a thing but IRL is real uh, and now with the meta thing people talking about you know Facebook turning to meta which is just yet another example of this collective imagination just trying to seep its way into the the IRL um, but I, I love sculpture I got into it because it felt much more physical and for me it's still a big part of um, why I do it even though I'm 46 now and starting to feel the wear and tear of some of the, you know, any, any physical work will start to break down a little bit. That's why I'm trying to do more sustainable exercises and workouts with my wife. And, and we're trying to put more of an emphasis on physical well-being, not just toil, but actual care and maintenance and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, to kind of wrap that up, I, I do think, we're learning collectively. We're, we're really 
having to learn what it means to be immersed in that collective imagination uh, so much of the time and without losing our minds. And maybe part of the key is to remember our bodies and the need to maintain them properly while we immerse ourselves in that other dimension. So before Steve does what Steve does, which is ask you questions about how you prepare for the physicality of your job, um, it just occurred to me that a lot of listeners here are probably not um, veterans of the art world. And my guess is they're curious. How do you make a living as, a, as an artist? Like you are a professional artist. Um, how does that work? What are the mechanics of it? Yeah, I think every artist will have a different story um, to an extent, and it also depends on your intention. Like I said, you could be an artist and, and do, draw comic books, and that's a very specific market and use of your skills. But in my case, my intention is to make fine art and try to insert it into that art historical narrative. Um, and But what I mean by that is it's you're trying to aim at the, the heart of that creativity that has sort of sustained this this um, continued conversation that we've had from since we were carving fertility goddesses thirty thousand years ago or whatever they are. I mean, it's it's in theory that's what they are. But um, so that said, yeah, my intention is to somehow contribute to that dialogue, and in that, it has its own set of commercial dilemmas and that they don't like to be they don't like to present it as commerce it has to be seen as untainted by the market but on the same time at the highest levels it's all about commerce so you have this paradox in the art world and what i mean by the art world is sort of the fine art galleries that are attempting to contribute to that same dialogue as opposed to some of the more commercial galleries that are more about i guess you could say interior design or decorative art um, and there's there is a distinction there and it's challenging to to try to position yourself to be viewed in that context because it's a very coveted and restrictive um, arena this this what I'm describing and an interesting thing that happened recently was nfts and people and this 70 70 million dollar nft digital art that sold was this kind of dialogue between people and one of the t top blue chip artists at one of the top galleries. And, and you just hear them kind of go at it in terms of what is art and, and <laughs> who gets to call it art. And, but now all of a sudden this outsider artist is the third most expensive living artist right now. So it kind of turned the whole thing on its head. What is fine art? And so it's an interesting dialogue that's happening at the moment um, with the direction of art and digital art and how open is it, how broad of a market can it be. But for me, kind of circling back to on a personal level, it's, it's really about connections, personal connections to galleries and to previous collectors that have expressed interest in my work and just kind of maintaining those relationships. and ultimately making your best work and seeing what happens. That's kind of been my mantra from the beginning. But so to relate it to our world of book publishing, 
is it, and I just want to get clear on like the, the supply chain, if you will, or their mechanics, someone will either commission something from you. So they'll go to you and say, Emil, I, I, I want a piece for this space, or I have this idea in mind, or you'll create something and then go to a gallery and sell it to the gallery, or they'll, they'll sell it and then take some commission. So there's like a Right. There's a yeah. push and a pull element. Is that right? Yeah. So the nuts and bolts of the, the gallery relationship is they'll consign something. And when they sell it, it's a 50-50 split. Unless there's expensive production costs and you can kind of negotiate to maybe 60-40 or something like that or production off the top. So in that sense, it can be um, very practical. Um, and then, and that's, I'd say, the majority of my, my interaction occasionally there will be a commission or something like that that arises where there'll be a site specific location. And in that instance, I'll, I'm very um, restrictive of what I'm willing to take on. It has to be, okay, I'm, I'm aware of the space. What do I want to make? Do you like it? Okay, we can move forward. <laughs> As opposed to ordering up something specifically. Or, and I, I kind of gave up on a lot of public artworks because there's so many limitations in terms of what you're able to do. Um, and I just kind of work with galleries and private collections because they're much more, um, much less committee oriented and is it safe enough or does it communicate the right message for a broad audience? And so there's the most creative freedom when I just make what's in, I make what I want in the studio and then see which gallery responds to it and who wants to show it or if all of them do, then that's great. But, um, mostly galleries and sometimes these site-specific commissions. So you, you mentioned right there that like freedom to express, right? Because it, it, in your world, even in our world of writing, it can be very tempting to just be like, okay, I'm going to go do this because the publisher or the, in your case, the public, whatever, want this thing done but what i'm hearing from you is like you like that freedom to express to figure out what you want to create is is sitting first and foremost and you kind of craft your vision and then you go look for where it fits versus the other way around yeah definitely absolutely i i think um I kind of describe it as there's the market on the far left or right, whichever. And then there's the studio on the opposite end. And then there's a lot of gray area in between. And the gray area is like an insulation buffer for me. When I'm in the studio, it's all about just exploring and creativity and and finding out what it is I want to do. And then on the other end, there's the market aspect of it. Like, how is this going to turn into money? And the more space between how is this turning into money and what am I doing in the studio, the better. And that I'm not really thinking about will this sell or does does this have the potential to sell when I'm making it because there's enough room between stuff that I've already made and things that are already happening from previous efforts to sustain the current exploration. So the, the more space I can create between my time in the studio and dealing with the challenges of selling the work, the better. I love that. That's such a, such a brilliant metaphor because it's so like that, 
it's like any aspect whenever the selling starts intruding on the creating and it, it impacts and impedes like yeah, it's that. almost quantum it's like observing the the study affects the study and and it absolutely i would say that's a, a perfectly accurate description of and i can kind of i have a little spidey sense or whatever that goes off when when there's a overlap or an intrusion and i, and I just kind of freak out and I, I know that it's not right and i I, I leave or I take a break or I, I completely reevaluate or I totally stall out. <laughs> yeah. So Go ahead. This reminds me a little, there was this fascinating um, essay in the Atlantic by a writer named Derek Thompson that Steve and I immediately hopped on the phone after we both read it and talked about um, where he said that there in his opinion, has been an enormous lack of creativity and invention over the last couple of decades because everything is now so responsive to real-time metrics. So instead of taking a big swing at um, a new movie, you make a sequel and then you make you know Terminator 9. Um, instead of doing some art that could really be original, you take something that's already worked and you do permutations of it. Um, so it, 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 what you're saying completely echoes that. And once you're in that orbit, I mean, we know it, from our work writing, it's extremely hard not to have that kind of feedback like encroach upon your brain because your brain is super contextual. So um, creating like some pretty rigid boundaries and barriers between where the creativity comes from in the work versus everything that's out there, I think is, is a, a hard practice and an important one. Yeah, well said. I agree. I think it's something I started to become very aware of early on. Um, really needing to buffer what happens to the work once it's finished and where the work, the new work comes from. And it's not to say that you're completely immune to influences of your previous successes. I don't want to sound like I'm perfect, but... <laughs> <laughs> I do. I think I, I'm also benefited from having what I might call ADHD or, or just getting bored really quickly. And if I find myself tempted to repeat anything, I just, it's excruciating. It's actually physically painful. And so I'll, I'll just turn it over and start something different, irrational and complicated and likely not to sell. And I think it's the spirit of innovation, really. You just, you don't want to get comfortable or in too much of a groove because I mean, that's, that's the end of it. So my intuition has been to go in the other direction enough to keep it interesting. So I love that idea. And I've said that a lot, but I do. So you're, it's almost like you're using the feedback of like boredom of comfort as like a signal that tells you like, up, oh, like this isn't the place I want to be in for creativity like i've got to i've got to shift and change absolutely yeah and it's um i've i guess the the more i've worked and the more i'm familiar with my creative process it's almost um like the the tingling happens before i'm even tempted to do anything it's like i i get and i find myself a little bit more halted or I, it's not procrastinating. It's just sitting on things longer because 
I want to make sure that it feels right before I invest the time and energy because you know the older you get the more you realize you don't have all the time in the world to to do some of these minor things that don't don't entirely hit the marks all the marks all the markers of um yes this is worth doing and one of the easiest things to weed out is does this feel redundant and by redundant i mean is it too close to what you already know rather than truly exploring and finding something that's that's um going to fill your sails or put you on the edge and make you horrified at yourself. <laughs> so which, let's talk. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Emil. No, no. I, I, which is, I think, part of the um, motivation is to just constantly try to freak yourself out. And I don't know. It's it's it, Maybe that's a personality thing, but I've always looked to try to upend my own satisfaction or comfort or etc. <laughs> I mean, I think that's when we first really hit it off is we featured you in peak performance in the section on meaning and purpose. And um, we were so thrilled that then you came back to us and said, I love the book. And what I'm hearing you describe is like what we would call stress plus rest equals growth. Like you just if you want to keep evolving and growing, you always have to be putting yourself outside of your comfort zone. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that. It's such a, that book had so many brilliant insights into that process. And I just, I don't think that it's something that has been clearly articulated or, or I mean, it should be curriculum, you know, in, in my opinion. Well, <laughs> teachers, librarians, if you're listening. Yeah. Right. It's so valuable, especially to kind of get people to tap into what creativity is and um, what rigor is. Uh, but not overdoing, you know, but to balance it. Cause I think it's also easy to burn out. And I, I too have been a victim of my own burnout and, you know, I tend to make slightly different works when I hit burnout mode that are a little bit more gentle, more pliable or less physically intensive. Um, yeah. And, and now I think I'm almost facing a, I don't know if it's the pandemic or if it's, midlife stuff, but I wouldn't say it's burnout as much as it is intense reevaluation of my workflow because I find it to not be that um, productive to have too many irons in the fire, uh, which has typically been my, and that's part of the gray areas. I think I, I, I make up for that market studio split by just having quantity of things in the in, in progress works in progress everywhere uh, from three inches to 12 feet tall you know they're just all over the place and and that's part of why I don't really always know what what's going to end up happening in the market because I have no clue what's happening even right now in front of me so it's it's almost creating too much gray area <laughs> which I've found to be um, maybe I need to be a little bit more disciplined about not relying on that sort of um, diversity in the studio for the sake of buffering me and protecting me from the market intense, the intense pressure from the market or from just making a living at it. So I think somewhere is a balance. I don't have to spread it out so much. I can be a little bit more deliberate and I'm reassessing my, my whole workflow at this point to try to be better at that. So 
So let's dive into the details a little bit about your workflow. Um, and one thing I'm curious about, as you just said, you have a ton of iron, you know, irons in the fire. Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis where you have all these different projects going on? Like, how do, you, how, how, do you, how do you decide what to work on? And then more important, like, how do you balance or switch between them? Well, the nice thing about sculpture is that it is time, very much time related. Everything has its time and place. Um, so oftentimes if I'm starting a piece, I'll have to walk away from it. And so that's an easy, because I can't work on it anymore. It has to dry or it has to cure or something like that. So that very physical aspect is, is part of what factors into that. So I have multiple pieces going because oftentimes I can't just work on one piece um, and do it consistently. So I say time is a medium and you have to factor it in and work with it. And I love that part of it. And even leaving pieces outside for a couple of years to expose them to the elements and bringing them back in, that's also something that I've explored recently. Um, but I think it's, it's largely intuitive and kind of impulsive, and I think that's the, the ADD part. Um, not to self-diagnose, but I think, I think there's probably something to that. And it might be not that because it, I have a very, I'm very good at focusing for long periods of time, but in my own way and with a lot of different things to, to distract me from one thing to the next. Um, and so I think that part of it becomes very uh, intuitive and uh, material um, and also occasionally deadlines. Uh, if I have a show or an art fair or a specific timeline that I have to work within, then that factors in as well. So do you, do you have any children? I have a stepdaughter and she's yeah. 24. She okay. uh, graduated college right at the beginning of the pandemic and not beginning. Yeah. Two months into the pandemic was her last class. And so she older. Yeah. What I was going to ask, because I have a three and a half year old, I'm a little oh, younger than yeah. you, but so children are the prime example of like, you know, little Zen masters that will come in the middle of anything you're doing and take you out of it. But I, I have a similar brain. I've worked with Steve long enough to know that he does too, where it can be all over the place. But then if you're locked in on something like you're locked in, um, you know, I haven't changed like certain light bulbs or replaced like a wrist strap on a watch until I'm done with a book project, because like, I can't take two minutes of brain activity to do that. I'm locked in. Um, how have you learned to manage that? Or maybe you haven't um, when you do have other things in in your life, whether it's a relationship or even just like the administrative bullshit parts of your job or like the promotion, all that other stuff. Have you figured out a good system for you so it doesn't feel like you're constantly getting that creativity in the space infringed upon? Right. No, it's a good question. I think I, I refer to it as artistic fitness in a way. <laughs> and I, it may have had it, it may have come from our talks previously from your peak performance book. But it's super important to have that momentum and to not have it be too interrupted. And, and in a way, if you want to stay fit, you have to just keep working out, you have to keep pushing yourself. And so I think the same applies in the studio, that kind of creativity comes from a certain level of 
commitment, time, fitness. And so, yeah, life does get in the way as it does get in the way of working out as much as you want to. Um, but I'm super fortunate in that my wife basically takes care of an enormous amount of the administrative stuff, pretty much all of it. And, uh, and she's also active in mold making and in the studio with projects from time to time as well. There's a lot of uh, support coming from there. And that definitely helps. It used to be that, like in my early days, I think I would feel more more of an urgency to get in the studio and to be productive. And then I think the more the more I became immersed in my own little, well, to use that word again, labyrinth, um, it's almost... Uh, it's it, it's luckily for me it just seems kind of seamless, and part of that is having a studio in the backyard and being able to just flow from work to raking to snow shoveling snow to mowing the lawn to whatever needs doing. It's almost like a a nice antidote to being in the studio. So, and and you know breaking for lunch or dinner and watching something at night. It's it's all welcome at this point because I do feel like I get so much time in the studio. So it's, um, it's, it seems pretty, pretty on cruise control in a way, that, that kind of dilemma. Whereas I used to have more of that dilemma. It just feels sort of well taken care of now. And again, part, a big part of that is not having to deal with a lot of the business management parts because Annie takes care of it. It's incredible. So let me ask you this, Emil. Let's, let's dive into... You know, we've we've kind of danced around this creativity, and I know la- long ago when we talked before peak performance, you had some great insight on almost like giving yourself the best chance to be in this creative mode by having the right environment around you. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, tell our audience a little bit on. How do you how do you get to that space in your studio where you can do good work? Yeah, I think um, part of it is being free from. I, for me, the best feeling is to wake up and feel like I don't have a lot of obligations, like or plans, or for a blank a blank day is is optimum. Uh, but if I know I have a, an 11 o'clock appointment or something like that, it, it, it definitely interrupts my ability to just get into a spontaneous workflow. And so trying to protect and insulate myself from too many responsibilities or obligations is key to maintain that, that momentum. Um, so, and that's why it's hard to, to do. People say, well, you know, isn't it weird to try to make a living out of making art? Shouldn't art not be tied to the market? And I say, well, that'd be great if you had a trust fund, but if you kind of have to make a living at it, you have to resolve that. And part of the resolution is feeling like you have um, the environment uh, set and setting. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it is kind of, um, it's a bit psychedelic, all of it, not to go esoteric or anything, but what, so I did, I did at one point when I was 16, way too many mushrooms in one sitting with my brother. 
<laughs> it kind of altered everything. And it took me years to process it. But it did teach me this really interesting um, alternate relationship to time. And so I think I'm sensitive to the influences that do either serve or hinder the creative process. And for me, it's super important to have a studio in the same spot as where I lived. I couldn't commute because a commute to me would immediately be um, a disruption. And it, at once I arrived, and I've had that in the past, a studio that was like 10 minutes away, and I just never got into a groove. It, I was there for a year and a half, and I never felt like things started to flow. And it wasn't until I had a studio in the backyard, and even though it was 200 square feet, it was tiny. In, those, in the 10 years that I had that tiny studio, it just everything just kind of worked because it felt seamless and easy and natural and not, not disrupted by anything. And also being surrounded by trees and, and the water out front. Yeah, I think if I were to wrap it up, I think it may sound selfish or self-focused. And I think that's part of the dilemma of a lot of creatives is that they just need to invest a lot of time in themselves both to understand what's going on and what's important and what matters to themselves. Um, I've, I've done a pretty good job of protecting my time and crafting each day to have as few intrusions or interruptions as possible to be able to build that momentum. And I think the setting is really important to that. If for that, um, having a studio in the right location. If you're enriched by a city, well, then that can work. But I know for me, a city would be very distracting. Um, being in a wooded area for me is kind of perfect. I like to look at the trees and see the animals and stuff like that. I think that immediately puts me into a... A lot of it's kind of beyond my understanding, too. I, I sometimes wonder how different would it be to have a studio in a different location. Um, I've gotten so used to this one. I've been here for almost 20 years. So some of these things are out of our conscious mind too. Yeah. It reminds me, there was a book uh, that came out earlier this year called the extended mind. We had a, an earlier podcast episode about it too, where um, the writer Annie Murphy, Paul basically says that we think of the, the mind in the, in the brain is the same thing inside our head, but the mind is actually so contextual. So what her book would argue is that if you were in a different studio, the work would be completely different. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's neat to think about that too. I think in so many contexts beyond just obviously um, art and creativity, but just as a way to, um, to, to change things up when you're stuck or if things aren't going a certain way or you're not happy with them, uh, changing your environment can be really powerful. Definitely. And that's part of what I'm trying to do in the studio. It's not so much changing the surroundings, but it's changing the activity inside the studio to kind of pare it down and be more, more deliberate in what I take on. So last question, um, and, and then we'll wrap up here. You've alluded to the fact that the work can be uh, pretty physical at times. So as you've aged, I'm curious has it reduced your capacity to spend time in the studio? Um, I know you said that you're starting to focus a little bit more, not just on pushing, but on recovering and taking care of your body. Um, could you just briefly 
kind of tell us about the physicality of the work and, and how you try to do it in a way that's sustainable as you, as you age? Yeah, for sure. I think early days, I didn't think twice about just going full on and lifting heavy things and as, as youth is capable of. And then one day I felt something weird happen <laughs> and it was in my lower back. And I thought, Oh, I guess that's what people talk about because you'd hear people say, Oh, mind your back or lift with your leg. And you think, yeah, yeah, whatever. I got this. And then the knife goes in and you feel something and it, and it never goes away completely. You always are aware that you could return there with any twist or misstep. So with enough of these kinds of injuries, be it in my upper back or my shoulder or my lower back, I'm definitely more cautious in my approach and more aware of the fact that I have to do um, maintenance type things that build strength and not just rely on, on the physicality of sculpting, which does burn a lot of calories, uh, but actually doing restorative and strengthening exercises. So I'd say in the last year or so, I've gotten much more serious about just maintaining, especially my upper body, because my legs, I'd always run up the hill to kind of blow off steam or, or that was easy. And luckily there's a, about a quarter of a mile hill right outside the studio that I just sprint up it. And sometimes I'll, I'll do suicides up it. And it's, it's cathartic and it's great, but it's not necessarily um, restorative for my shoulder or my back and things like that. So lately I've been doing more um, deliberate strengthening exercises. And I think that's part of um, striking a balance between being able to work smarter and longer even though it seems like you're redirecting energy and attention to something else. And I think that's wisdom. As you age, you start realizing, oh, I'm actually more productive if I redirect my energy elsewhere to then bring it back with greater effect to the studio. I love it. Thanks so much, Emil. Um, just to wrap up, I, I, you know, you're deeply insightful. You gave a lot of actual very good practical takeaways, and I, I've just really enjoyed this conversation and have a slew of notes over here. Cool. <laughs> but I, I just want to thank you, but then I want to leave you one spot. If, if you know, for our audience, you've, you've read our work, you've been a longtime supporter, all of that stuff, you've been generous with your time, what message would you like to leave um, with our audience, you know, something that, that is, uh, impactful for you or something that, um, you know, might make a difference. Wow. That's a great question. I mean, I think we are as humans, fundamentally creative beings. We thrive on expressing ourselves within a small community or a broader community and whatever that expression whatever form that takes, I think it's important to cultivate the space where you can access it and tune out a lot of the noise that is so tempting, especially this sort of digital opium that we scroll through every day. And whether it's, you know, Twitter or with words or Instagram with images, it's so tempting to get lost in that world and myself included. So I, I say this for myself to remember to cultivate that internal world and tap into what it might be that matters to express and to share to somehow contribute to this um, amazing human experiment that 
that we're a part of. Because I do feel like I'm not a I'm not a postmodern postmodernist in the sense that nothing matters or it's all kind of redundant. I, I do believe that we may be small in the universe, but it's it's our thing. It's our universe according to us because we matter too, even though we're tiny. And so we might as well make the best of it while we're here. And that means tapping into who we are and and who our neighbors are and and how can we get along better and how can we understand what it means to be here better. Love it. Cool. (laughs) Good question. Profound answer. Um, Well, thank you so much um, for coming on the podcast Uh, for listeners in the show notes. We'll include Emil's website where you can learn more about him and some of his work. Is there anywhere else, Emil, that you would direct people to um, if they wanted to learn more? Primarily, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I have a lot of new content there. I, I also love photography, so it was sort of a natural app for me to start uploading things. So you can definitely see me there, just Emil Alzamora. Great. All right. Thanks, Emil. Oh, man. Thank you, guys. This has been great. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.